the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. This episode of the podcast features the opening address from our 2018 Summer Conference. The address is titled, Why Humanness is the Key to Bioethics, and was delivered by Dennis Hollinger, Ph.D., who is President Emeritus and Distinguished Senior Professor of Christian Ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. As I mentioned, this is the opening address from our 2018 conference. The full audio from this conference, 10 plenary sessions, 18 parallel sessions, and three combined sessions, is now available as part of the premium content access provided to CBHD members. Not a member of CBHD? Sign up before the new year, and you'll receive all the member benefits for both 2020 and 2021. That means you'll receive access to audio from more than 730 conference sessions, full access to the Dignitas Electronic Archives from 1994 on, all 2020 and 2021 issues of Ethics and Medicine, an international journal of bioethics mailed to you, plus conference journal and book discounts through the end of the 2021 calendar year. Standard membership is only $75, or for students, only $40. Learn more and sign up at cbhd.org slash subscribe. Now here's Dr. Dennis Hollinger on the opening night of our 2018 conference with Why Humanness is the Key to Bioethics. It is a great joy, again, to be here at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. It's been my privilege to be part of the center in various ways over the years. I've learned so much, learned much from many of you, even in times when I've taught the wraparound course, as I did for many years, and a number of you were students. Uh, It makes me feel a little older as I look around the room and remember that some of you were my students back a number of years ago. But this has been a great center. It's been my privilege uh, to be part of it. And I feel a special privilege to uh, do the introductory presentation for this evening. I thought it would be helpful for us to begin by asking the question, why are we here at at a conference on bioethics and being human? 25 years ago, when the center began, I'm not sure we would have framed the questions in the way we are tonight. In those days, we examined issues primarily at the beginning of life, at the end of life, somewhat in the course of life, but largely under the framework human dignity. The significance and the meaning of human dignity for issues like abortion, fetal research, assisted suicide, and treatment termination. But in this time in history, we are really focused, or we are really forced to focus on the previous word. Human. What does it mean to be a human? Who is a human being in whom we recognize dignity? I'd like to probe two primary reasons as to why this shift from dignity to humanness. To ask the question, why are we having to deal with this question at this time in history? What does it mean to be a human being and how did we arrive at this place in history. In so doing, I think we'll be able to see that this issue, humanness, is no doubt becoming the key issue in bioethics in our time. 
The first reason, it seems to me, that we are here dealing with this question is obviously the emergence of new technologies. Of course, new technologies have always been the drivers in bioethics. New technologies brought about the reproductive technology issues that we've had to deal with. Ventilators hasten the ethical issues surrounding treatment termination. And various technologies that were able to induce death brought about, in part at least, the assisted suicide movement. But today's technologies, a new generation of biotechnologies, raises the more fundamental question. What counts as a human being? For example, when artificial intelligence performs on par with or even outperforms human capabilities, the question naturally emerges. This is particularly the case because a number of religious and philosophical traditions have affirmed reason as one of the key markers of being a human. That is, the demarcation between a human being and other animals is the capability of reasoning at a, high, a far higher level. But if reason is an indicator of our humanness, what do we do when the machine reasons at higher levels than the human? Or take the issue of robots in the workplace. When a robot performs certain work, including medical surgeries now, performs them with precision, and can actually calculate and adapt to unforeseen variables, we're pushed to ask the question, what's the difference between the two? We've long asserted the notion that we are homo faber, we're human as worker and doer, one of the signs of our humanness. Humans work, and we find meaning in it one of the creation mandates. But when we enter the world of machine faber, the machine as worker, the distinctions tend to get blurred. Or take another example, a recent form of robotics, sex bots. Already popular in Japan and growing in interest in these in the United States and Europe, these are human-looking robots, male and female, who perform sexual acts with human beings. Initially, when they came to Japan, a number of Japanese said they actually preferred sex with these sex bots because you didn't have to attend then to the emotional and the relational intimacy issues. That is, you didn't have to deal with conflict with the sex bot. And of course, we might respond by saying to this, that only proves the point. Human beings engage in relationships, and that's at the heart of our humanness. Thus, sex without relationships is a contradiction. But according to the latest reports, and I've never seen one of these, but according to the latest reports, these sex bots are programmed with more and more relational capabilities. They speak, they can respond to the user, they can respond even in the sexual act, and they have something close to personalities. And so what happens when a person comes along, and it will happen, a person comes along and they say, I want to marry my sex bot, I love him, or her, or it. After all, last year, a woman in New York married herself. 
She had a wedding ceremony. She was surrounded by friends, wedding dress, flowers. She even took vows to herself. Looking in a mirror, she said, I do, to herself. And so if marriage is simply about who you love, then why not self or why not a sex bot? Clearly then, new technologies are pushing the question that brings us together for these days. What is a human being? How are humans distinct? Historically, with the emergence of new technologies, we've said we develop our technologies and therefore we can control them. But of course, technologies, including biotechnologies, have a way of controlling us as well. Take, for example, simple technology, a bicycle. When you hop on a bike and you ride the bike, do you ride the bike or does the bike ride you? Think about it. We usually say, well, we control the bike. We pedal when we want to go. We turn to the right. We turn to the left. We brake. And that is true. But of course, the bicycle technology dictates to you exactly what you must do in order to ride it. You ride the bike, but the bike also rides you. And so technologies, including biotechnologies, actually do, to some degree, control us. Moreover, frequently with new technologies, there is both a cultural lag and a moral lag following the development of the new technologies. Take, for example, self-driving cars. They're deemed to be safer, but are they safer when it comes to moral and personal formation of the self? Historically, in American society, age 16 and learning to drive was a significant rite of passage. Most of us can remember going through that. It was pivotal in the movement from adolescence to adulthood. At 16, you had to learn a set of rules for driving. You had to bear responsibility for your actions. You took on a task that carried with it moral responsibilities because of others on the highway. There were heightened physical judgments and a growing maturity. With driverless cars and that technology, all of that is gone. Now, of course, our society will eventually find another rite of passage through which these responsibilities may be inculcated. But no doubt, as with other technologies, there will be a cultural and a moral lag between the technology and the new forms of responsibility. The answer to this reality about technology and its impact on our sense of humanness is not to become a Luddite who simplistically rejects technology. We do well to recall the observation of Douglas Adams, who groups technology into three categories in terms of our response to them. First, everything that's already in the world when you're born, that's just normal. Secondly, Anything that gets invented between your birth and when you turn 30 is incredibly exciting and creative, and with any luck, you might make a career out of it. But finally, anything that gets invented after your 30 is against the natural order of things and the beginning of the end of civilization as we know it. That's the way we've often responded, isn't it? 
But rather than simplistic rejection or naive acceptance, we need as Christians a critical and thoughtful analysis of new technologies, an awareness of where and how they threaten our understanding of humanness. Such, I believe, will call for a bilingual approach, a critique of the technologies and the language of our faith and theology, and this should always be the starting point in our engagement as believers. But then also to be able to speak into the language of the culture, attempting to translate our convictions into a language that is accessible to the populace, to people who do not share our common assumptions that we carry as Christians who trust in Christ and Holy Scripture. And we must do so without transgressing our theological commitments and language. After all, it's not just Christians who are concerned about what sex bots might do in our culture, our relationships, and our selfhood. And so the first reason we're gathered here at a conference on humanists is the new technologies, eagerly embraced by the culture, they have forced us to wrestle with the issue and its impact on bioethics, and in the midst of it, we will need a great deal of wisdom, not blind acceptance or simplistic rejection. But there's a second reason I think we're gathered to talk about humanists. And that is there's been a major shift for our modes of thinking that lead us to question whether it's even possible to discuss the notion of human nature and humanness. The issue here is not just what we think, but how we think. It's not just a shift in concepts about certain matters, but an actual shift in the patterns of our thinking itself. With the concept of humanness, it's not, the, not just that late moderns have accepted new concepts of being a human, but they have adapted to forms of thinking which render the whole enterprise suspect. To put it rather clearly, there's been a shift from thinking about the essence of realities to questioning whether there is indeed such a thing as essence or inherent meanings. Therefore, the whole business of discerning in human nature is questioned, not by rival concepts of humanists, but by patterns of thought that question whether there could ever be such a thing as humanness or human nature. Thus, in today's world, it's said to be impossible to think about an essence of marriage because marriage is simply a social construct made and discerned by human beings. There are no givens about marriage only the given that we will subjectively define certain kinds of relationships, now including with self, or perhaps a sex bot, as constituting marriage. There is no intrinsic meaning, no intrinsic essence. There's likewise, in this mode of thinking, no inherent meaning or essence to a sexual act. The issue here is not just that there are rival perceptions about the essence or meaning of sex, but rather that any meaning derives from the self, or if others are involved, the selves. And so in similar fashion, there's no essence to humanness. There's no essential meaning to being a human, and thus the door is open to self-define, and perhaps even more significantly, not to define at all. 
The very notion of a human essence that could guide us in terms of what technologies we might accept and what we might not accept is rendered obsolete. But how did we get there? How did we move from a world in which there was at least acceptance of the notion of human nature to reject it, even if there was not always uniformity in what constituted human nature? Let me say, as we probe this, we don't want to hark back to the good old days when supposedly there was a universal acceptance of what constituted human nature. That is, we can't be smug or naive about the past. After all, we sometimes got humanness wrong. Many, and including Christians sometimes, questioned whether Native Americans were human beings. And I remind us that for apportionment purposes, black slaves counted as three-fifths of a person in our nation's original constitution. So much for a Christian nation, by the way. So let's not become smug in thinking we always got humanness right in the past. But we are now in a time in which the very notion that there is such a thing as humanness or human nature is questioned. In the past, if we sometimes got human nature wrong, there was at least the possibility of something outside of our self-definitions to which we could appeal. Now, there seems to be nothing but self-referential perceptions, nothing outside of the self to define the self. How did we arrive at all of this? Well, this mode of thinking can in part, at least, be traced back to the existentialist movement of the mid-20th century, with its insistence of existence over essence, or as they often put it, existence precedes essence. Jean-Paul Sartre, in his essay, Existentialism as Humanism, put it this way. He said, what do we mean by saying that existence precedes essence? We mean that man, first of all, exists, encounters himself, surges up in the world, and defines himself afterwards. If man, as the existentialist sees him, is not definable, it is because, to begin with, he is nothing. He will not be anything until later, and then he will be what he makes of himself. And thus, Satra was quite explicit. There is no such thing as a human nature. We are what we conceive ourselves to be and what we will ourselves to be. Man is nothing but what he purposes. He exists only insofar as he realizes himself, and he is therefore nothing but the sum of his actions. There is no sense of a life a priori. Life is nothing until it is lived. And Satra then says, there is no other universe except the human universe, the universe of human subjectivity. Interestingly, he closes this essay by saying, this is humanism, because we remind man that there is no legislator but himself. As we come into the postmodern world, 
we find similar kinds of rejection of the notion of essence and meaning to things, including our humanness. Michel Foucault, for example, argues that such notions are merely assertions of power. Any claim to a truthful account of who we are in our essence or nature is merely an attempt to control the thinking and actions of others. It is simply a power ploy. Now we might think, well, this is just the work of erudite philosophers, French philosophers at that, whose thinking has no bearing on the populace and the way they conceive reality. But I would suggest to us that such modes of thinking have trickled down into everyday life and into the lives of common people. This is not simply the thought process of intellectuals. Increasingly in late modernity or postmodern society, we think and live as if there is no essence about marriage, sex, parenthood, life, and human nature. And that's common among average people. Our humanness is what we conceive it to be and what we make it to be. Our whole cognitive processes are oriented that way. We simply do not think any longer in terms of an essence or essential intrinsic meaning to things. The implication flowing from this thought process is that there is no normative framework outside of ourselves by which we define what human flourishing might look like. And it's very interesting in lots of writings, including writings by Christians today, we're using that term, human flourishing. But of course, it begs the question, what is the human that is flourishing? What would human flourishing look like? It presupposes some definition about humanness. There is then no normative framework which might limit what we do with human beings in our technology. Therefore, there are therefore no limits in how we might change humans as we now know them, unless, of course, it causes harm to another person's judgments and physical well-being. And that is clearly the stance of post-humanism and transhumanism for those who, have you, who are familiar with those movements. But what is most powerful about this is very simply that essence and meaning outside of the self is no longer part of the way we think or the way in which our minds work. And yet there are ironies in all of this. Let me note some of them. While we reject the notion of a humanist, homo sapiens still innately long to be treated in relationships as if they counted, as if they were a somebody. They long to be loved and cared for, listened to. In their frailties, as we would say as Christians in their fallenness, they even sometimes long to give care and love to another. And thus, interestingly, we reject the concept of humanness, and yet we long for something that may well be part of our humanness, relationality. While we reject the notion of human nature with intrinsic moral norms, we have at least some intrinsic drives to be treated justly, to be trusted, to be given the truth by others, and to have our lives treated with dignity. And thus the irony that we reject notions of human essence and yet we cling to moral ideals 
that may well be part of our humanness, humans as moral creatures. And while we reject the notion of givens about humanness, we encounter ourselves and other Homo sapiens in a twofold way as beings with a physical side and yet always a cognizance that we are more than physical. We are, as we frequently put it today, embodied souls or ensouled bodies. Our very experiences in life propel us to cling to the reality that we cannot be reduced merely to a soul or to physical atoms, molecules, cells, or hardwiring of the brain. Our experience of self and others points to something that may well be part of our humanness, embodied souls, ensouled bodies, this unusual, unique mix of physicality and non-physicality in the human being. And while we reject the notion of givens about human sexuality, most human beings still have a sense of their self in accordance to their sexual organs. And they have a drive with those sexual organs to show committed love to another and bring children into the world. After all, at this point, humans can only procreate with the sexual material of male and female. And that's true, by the way, of all the reproductive technologies. Cloning, of course, would be the exception. And while there are sexual anomalies in a fallen world, such as intersex conditions or sexual drives oriented towards a person of the same sex, there is in nature itself, pervasive throughout nature, I remind us, that reality that life on earth continues through a binary sexuality. It may well point to essential humanness. And while we are enamored with knowledge of artificial intelligence, we all intuitively seem to know that reason and data alone will not suffice. Along with knowledge, we need something else that is essential in life, wisdom. Ability to take knowledge and data and apply it in ways that truly enable human flourishing, beauty, and goodness. And thus part of our humanness may be that we are creatures who are differentiated not by the degree of knowledge, but by the ability to discern with that knowledge, wisdom, something I don't believe artificial intelligence will ever be able to do, even when they can ascertain some of the variables in context. And then while we reject the notion of intrinsic human meaning, as homo sapiens, we have throughout history and we continue today to look to something beyond this world for meaning, hope, solace, and guidance. And even though some will be content to relegate this to cultural myths or synapses of the brain, we still seek for transcendence, even if some seek to find it within themselves. Could it be that part of what it means to be human is one who can relate and commit to the God of the universe who created us and gave us a humanness reflecting the creator's image. So while we tend not to think in terms of essence and meaning when it comes to humanness, 
the reality is people still strive for realities that point to what I believe does constitute something that might be humanness. Relational beings, moral beings, embodied souls, sexual beings, beings who can discern with wisdom not just brute facts, and spiritual beings who long for and can experience true transcendence beyond themselves. Though in a broken world, these longings and realities are fractured physically and morally, to belong to Homo sapiens is to be a member of a group in which we seek to protect these realities, even with our physical, spiritual, and moral limitations. These things, I suggest, we do know intuitively, but as Christians, they are ultimately grounded biblically and theologically. Above all, we find our created, created humanness in the one who embodied true humanness, who modeled without sin or self-aggrandizement what it truly means to be human. This is, of course, the second Adam, Christ, our Savior and Lord. Mark Cortez of Wheaton College in a recent book on theological anthropology and how Christ is understood in that theological anthropology said, Jesus is not just the return of Adam, as though he merely reconstituted the state of humanity in the garden. But he is both the one who inaugurates the new creation and fulfillment of all that God intended from the beginning, and the new Adam, who is the culmination of God's plan for humanity, the telos that defines the essence of what it means to be a human. And so we live in a pluralistic, secular, confused culture that has fully embraced the latest technologies and a culture that finds it hard to think in categories of essence and meaning. But in the midst of this, we do well to remember that it is the second Adam Christ who not only embodies authentic humanness, but enables us to truly see it. Perhaps this sounds odd at a bioethics conference, but I believe that the more we know and love Christ, and the more that we embrace all that flows from that relationship and our perceptions and worldviews about reality, the more we will be able to know what humanness looks like. May God grant us the wisdom in Christ to navigate our way in a complex world. That was Why Humanness is the Key to Bioethics by Dr. Dennis Hollinger from our 2018 conference, Bioethics and Being Human. This and more than 730 audio resources are available to CBHD members. For more information and to sign up, visit cbhd.org slash subscribe. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2020, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. 
All post-production for the Bioethics Podcast is done by CBHD Communications and Marketing Manager, Annalise Troll. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.